Colossians 3. We're going to start with verse 5, and we're going to read through verse 7. Colossians 3, 5 through 7, this is the word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Good morning, everyone. We've got your Bibles there in front of you. Colossians 3 is our text this morning. And our title is Living by Dying. Or Live by Dying. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord to help us. Lord Jesus, only you can transform a heart from stony cold darkness and callousness and hardness into um, the kind of fertile soil that can be plowed by your Spirit. And we're asking for that plowing to happen today. We're asking for you to remind us of what has happened to us in Christ and then to help us know how we ought to live in this next section in the book of Colossians. We pray that you would invade our every element of our hearts this morning, and I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would empower my words and let them fall on receptive hearts and lives that are really ready to change. We pray, Lord, that you would use your word here in this auditorium, in our overflow room, and in our campus in Columbus, Indiana. We ask you in Jesus' name just to speak today by your power and for your glory and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. You ever done something and um, taking a look at it from a historical perspective, had this thought, why did I do that? Or worse, said something and went, oh, wish I wouldn't have said that. Ever committed a sin and thought in your heart, you know what? I'm never doing that again. Never. That's just really not good. Or maybe ever had this thought, you know, I just wish that there could be a a greater sense of good fruit coming out of my life. I think that all of us resonate with those statements at one level or another We all know that um, to receive Christ as Savior means not that you're perfect, but that you serve a risen, perfect Savior, and that we're all in process. Sanctification is a work by which God, through His Spirit, helps to grow us in Christ-likeness. And wishing to be more than what you are, while wanting to bear fruit and also really wanting to put off sinful behavior, is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, sanctification really relates to two concepts. Uh, One, vivification, which is developing good works and virtues. Say that word with me, will you? Vivification. It's an old school word, so today's like Big Word Sunday at College Park Church, okay? So, Big Word Sunday. So, when people, you know, come in from the third service, they say, how are you today? You're like, I am vivified, you know? So, yeah, I'm using old school words. So, vivification means that I've got a life of fruitfulness. And then we also have mortification. Say that mortification. So yeah, vivification and mortification. And what those words mean is that there's a dual role in our sanctification. It means that on the one hand, we are to be relentless in our pursuit of trying to kill sin in our life. And on the other hand, we need to be relentless in our desire for good fruit to be born. So 
If you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I've got news for you. Everything on that slide doesn't apply to you. If you've never made the decision to repent of your sins once and for all and to ask Christ for your forgiveness so you could be justified, meaning you could be right with God, you have no power to defeat sin. You're still under God's judgment. You have no ability to do anything good. You may say, well, wait a minute, I I do good stuff. Well, the problem is, is you don't do it for God, and anything not done for God is bad, so therefore even your good stuff is bad stuff. So even in your good stuff, you still sin against God. How about that? All right? That's serious. So the call from the Bible, the gospel is, the only way for you to start over and be right with God is to receive Christ as your Savior, invite Him to cleanse you of your sins, because that's what you can't do on your own, and that starts you into a life of renewed freedom, an ability to defeat sin, an opportunity to walk in newness of life. Your guilt has been covered. Your soul has been set free. You're a new person. That's who you are when you receive Christ. And the church is a group of people who are being vivified, they're growing in their fruitfulness, while they're mortifying their sins. So there's a dual role that we need to see in the idea of sanctification. This aspect of we're defeating sin and we're also bearing fruit. And by the way, you can't be bearing fruit when sin is reigning. So therefore, the 17th century Puritan John Owen said it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Eh? That's works, so that'll preach. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Meaning if you're not working on defeating sin, it'll kill your relationship with Christ. And we don't mean definitively, what we mean is a down drag, a weight on you. Now this morning we're in a new section in the book of Colossians called Jesus-Centered Living where Paul is going to take some truth that we've seen over the last three chapters and he's going to become, to borrow a term from Paul Tripp, intentionally invasive. I love that. Paul's going to get in your face. He's going to you know, kind of take some stuff and, and push it towards our hearts for us to really evaluate, is this how I'm really living in light of who and what Christ is? And what we see here is that Paul introduces in this particular chapter three different imperatives in this section. If you're a person who likes to write down notes or underline your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline these three little phrases because they're three imperatives, three commands that follow a series of indicatives in chapter 2. The indicatives are descriptions of who you are. And we've gone over this and over this and over this. Things like you were buried with him, you were circumcised in him, you were raised with him. All those are indicatives. They describe who you are. Now we have imperatives. The first one is in verse 5. That's what we're looking at today. And that is that little phrase, put to death. So underline that one, put to death. It's the first imperative. The second imperative is in verse 8, where he says, put away. But now you must put them all away. And then we'll have another list that we'll look at next week, another imperative. Put these away. And then we see in verse 12, where he says, put on then. So we've got all these indicatives, who you are in Christ, what your position is. And then he says, now do these three things. Put these to death, put this away, and put this on. The point of all of that is for us to understand that the Christian life, by definition, is not just an idea or a concept, but it's meant to be something that's lived practically. So all of the things that we've talked about, who we are in Jesus, are supposed to relate to how we live practically in our life. This morning I want to take up the first word, first phrase, put to death, and try and figure out what does that mean. And we're going to do that by looking first at the principle or the concept. What does it mean to put something to death? And then secondly, looking at what is exactly the battle that we're talking about. And then third, the motivation. 
message this morning is going to be tipped more towards the front part. I want to spend a bulk of our time looking at what it means to put this thing to death and what does really that all mean. And I hope today that you'll be able to leave with a greater sense of really how to walk in newness of life and what it means to really be vivified or to be sanctified and to put to death the deeds of the body, to be mortified. So the first thing is this idea of putting something to death. Look at verse 1. It says, put to death therefore. Now the word therefore is there because just prior to this particular section, Paul had talked about things like setting your mind on things above. Remember that in verse 1? If you've been raised with Christ... Again, there's an indicative. Seek, there's an imperative, those things which are above, where Christ is seated. So he says, set your mind on these, set your affection on these things. And then Paul uses the word therefore to show us how to apply what he's just said. If you know anything about New Testament literature, particularly Pauline letters, it's very common for him to do that. He talks doctrine and then therefore to a bridge of life application. What he's doing here is saying, look, if you're going to set your mind on things above, that there is a real battle that you need to be involved in where you put Christ in the middle of your heart and because of that commitment to make him the core, you put sinful inclinations and desires to death. You allow the new nature to control you. You allow your flesh to die and you allow the Spirit of Christ by the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit in you, to live. And that's why this is a very important word, therefore. It's a bridge. Let me give you some data points on what it means to put to death. The first thing I want you to see here is that it is a mindset. It's it's a frame of how you're to think. It's like lenses that you would put on. It's the way that you're to view life from a spiritual perspective. I take this from the fact that the phrase put to death is a particular Greek tense. It's an aorist active imperative. What does this mean? It means that it is a command, it's an imperative. It's an active, something that's something that needs to happen continually, but it's also something that's rooted in a completed event, a completed past event. It means that there's been a decisive initial act, meaning when you received Christ, that has created a settled attitude. So something happened in the past, a decisive initial moment, that now relates to a settled, continual attitude. So how I see life is now informed by the reality of what has happened in the past. And for the believer, this means that when we received Christ as our Savior, we were buried with Him, we were raised with Him, the debt of our sin was canceled, and therefore we walk now in newness of life. So I have a settled attitude based upon my former action. Something that took place in the past now creates a mindset or a frame of reference through which I now process all of life. So fundamentally, theologically, it means that when I see the opportunity for my flesh to be activated or to act on sinful desires, that I know and have this mindset, I am dead to that. I've been crucified with Christ. I've been buried with him, and therefore my frame of reference is my life is now affected by what happened in the past. If you were to say to me, Mark, tell me about your marriage. If I were to say, oh yeah, it was great, it was June 25th, 1993, I I weighed like 40 pounds, and um, (laughs) had lots of hair, and you know... uh, and Pastor um, Will Davis was marrying us in Alaska Baptist Church, and I was crying and didn't have Kleenex. And you'd be like, no, 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 let's say your marriage ceremony. I said, your marriage. Well, that relates to the marriage ceremony, right? But when you talk about telling you about your marriage, it means what's happening now. now that marriage began on June 25th, 1993, but it's continually informing my present reality. 
It's informing how I live in this present life right now. So it's a, a status question for the immediate, not just the past. This is how the Bible talks about sanctification in our lives. It talks about it from a mindset perspective. Let me show you this. Turn over to Romans 6. You need to have your finger Romans 6 because we're going to go back and forth briefly here at the beginning between Romans 6 and Colossians 3. There's some great parallels between these two passages about what it means to have a mindset first and then also how physical obedience relates to this. Look at verse 11. I don't think it could be any clearer than this passage. This really helps to shed some light on what we mean by mindset. It says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay? So in light of all of what Paul has said, theologically, positionally, if you look back at the first ten verses, you would see all sorts of stuff about who Jesus is and, and who we are in Him. And Paul says, so if that's true, so you also, also referring back to Christ, like as Christ was buried, you were buried, like He was raised, you were raised, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. Even though sin still exists within us, even still that there is this remnant of desire and sinful, wicked stuff that exists, Paul says, you need to consider yourself dead to that. That means that when you wake up in the morning, the reality of your life is not neutral. It's not a neutral battle. You just don't walk through life with, well, maybe I'll sin, maybe I won't, maybe I'll be victorious, maybe I won't. The the decisive battle in that arena has been won. You just have to consider yourself and appropriate the power that's available to you. Remember the Bible said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we need believers today who get out of bed and have this mentality, I will consider myself dead to sin. And as attractive and as desirable as that sin is, I will say to it, you don't rule me, you don't own me, I don't have to do what you say to do anymore. I belong to Jesus, he's the core, and he set me free from you, so get out of my life. And we need to live like that, beloved. We need to have that attitude, not some kind of willy-nilly, weak-kneed Christian life. Well, maybe I'll sin, maybe I won't, I don't You need to walk in the office and say, I am vivified today, right? I'm going to mortify and vivify. I'm going to be new in Christ. And we need to stop separating who we are in Christ from how we live. We need to realize that, man, Jesus brought us from death to life, and it's time to start living like that. That's not some cheesy promise of a health and wealth sort of perspective. That means that, man, when sinful stuff comes across my path, I tell it to be quiet, sit down, shut up. You don't own me anymore. Talk tough to your flesh. Not your kids. Secondly, it involves physical obedience. It says, put to death. Put to death is a physical metaphor. You don't really put something to death kind of tentatively, right? Or non-definitively. It means that there's an action here. There's a result that has that's in view. This isn't just some physical or physiological, no, Philosophical, that's the word I want. This isn't some philosophical idea, but rather this is a physiological, this is physical, this relates to specific, tangible steps of obedience. Meaning that the Christian life was meant to be something that you not only think about, hear me, it was meant to be something that you do. That the way in which you consider yourself dead to sin is the result you live in it. You live a different life. You're, there's a different way in which you present your body. 
to God instead of to sin. Back to Romans 6. Look at verse 12, Romans 6. You should have a little cross-reference note in your Bible, a little CF, see Colossians 3, 5. great cross-reference back and forth. Let not sin, he says, verse 12, therefore reign in your mortal bodies that to make you obey their passions. Don't present your members as sin to, as, as members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. See that? So I get up and I say, I have been brought from death to life, and here's my body, here's my mind, here's my heart, and I want to be used by you today, God, and I don't want my flesh to use this body. He says, and present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Therefore, to get this principle right means that I understand that I've been set free and there's a different mindset, but it means that there's real, tangible, obedient steps that are now reflected in my life, specifically in my body, that I'm presenting my body as a living sacrifice. Friday and Saturday of this weekend, I was in Avon, Connecticut, leading a Fresh Encounter um, prayer meeting for a church um, and also doing a prayer seminar all day Saturday. And that Friday evening, it's a beautiful moment in this church, Valley Community Baptist Church. People have a really strong heart for the Lord. They're in a month-long emphasis on prayer. And I was there to lead them in prayer in a fresh encounter service. And before the service, I, in a private meeting with a pastor, his name was Jay, I said, Hey, Jay, I'm here to serve you today. And, you know, if we're in the middle of this prayer service tonight, and you just sent, sense God wanting to direct us a particular way, you just tell me because... You know, we just kind of have an open agenda tonight. I got an idea of where we're going to go, and you just let me know. Fully expecting that he would not take me up on that offer. <laughs> in the middle of the service, he leans over to me and says, Hey, I think right after this song, we should ask for an invitation for people to come forward. And I'm going, No, no, a bad idea, a bad idea. No, 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 no. Because I, and I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I'm praying, now do I trust? You know, I'm just trying to process this through praying through for the Lord's wisdom and, Lord, what do I do here? And, and then I just felt like the Lord leading my heart, just like, Mark, this guy's the shepherd of this church. He knows his people. He knows what to do. Trust him. And just let him do it. And if it fails, it'll be his fault, you know? So it's all right. So, (laughs) so. So I got up and I said, hey, your pastor had something on his heart. And he wants to share with us with you. I'm just going to let him just, you know, teed him up. And he got up there and, and I sat down and, and he got up and said, I feel like we just need to have an invitation right now. If you want to come during this next song and just kneel at the altar and pray. And the musical underscore was hear us from heaven or touch our generation. He's playing through. There's like 225 people there. And I'm not exaggerating. I thought, wow, like, like three or four people will come forward and, and 200 plus people are all lined up and i'm standing there and i'm watching people they're on their face they're weeping they're pleading with god for a breakthrough in their community they're raising their hands as we're singing hear us from heaven touch this generation we are your people crying out in desperation and i'm looking and i wish i had a camera to just capture this moment because there were 200 all the way back in the aisles and here we are in, in in the area the physical location where the first great awakening happened historically i mean we're only like a couple hundred miles away from it and here are 200 people on their face And when I get that image of a person on their knees with their hands spread up to God saying, here we are, Lord, touch our generation. I can't help but think of Romans 6, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Make them an instrument of righteousness. 
That when you get up in the morning, that your posture in life ought to be, Lord, here I am. I am your servant. You've set me free, and I just want to be used by you. This is why I'm here. See, that's the idea. Not this weak-kneed perspective of, well, maybe I'll sin or maybe I won't. No, it's that you have been a person who's been bought by the blood of Christ. And Paul says, and if that's the case, then you will present your members as instruments for righteousness. With the same vigor with which you used to present your flesh as an instrument for unrighteousness, Paul says, take that flesh and say to Christ, here it is, fill me and use me for your glory. Now, that's beautiful. Christianity is supposed to affect how we live. It's a mindset. It's physical obedience. And third, and this is the most important thing I'm going to say all morning. It involves an intentional atrophy. Let me explain what I mean. The Greek word nekru is used to describe things that are as good as dead. For instance... Abraham in Romans 4, in his inability to conceive a child, refers to him as as good as dead. He's alive, but he's dead. That's how he viewed himself and Sarah. We're alive, but we're as good as dead in reference to our ability to conceive Isaac. Of course, God intervened. The word and its usage carries the idea of something that while it is technically alive, it has a functional deadness to it. Say, it's technically alive, but it's got a functional deadness. For instance, when you wake up in the morning and you slept kind of weird in your arm, and there's that sense that I went to bed with two arms, but I only have one now. You know that sense? And you've got this cold, clammy thing laying on your on your chest, and you're, you you can't move it, right? And you pick it up, and it's boom. And you're like, boy, I hope that comes back soon, right? And so it starts getting blood in it. But for a few moments, it's there, and it's alive, but it's functionally useless. So, in the midst of my research on this word, I come across Kittle's definition of the word necru, and he uses the word atrophy. And I went, yes! Yes, atrophy! I'm in my study, I'm like, yes! Oh, atrophy! Yes, 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 yes! Atrophy, 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 atrophy! That's a little overstatement, but the point was, I was so stoked about atrophy. You're like, what's the big deal with atrophy, right? Why, Why is this such a big deal? Let me tell you why. Because it was used to denote a part of the body that through sickness became atrophic or was rendered useless. That really helped me understand what Paul is saying here. Here's why. Because put to death seems to be so definitive. Like, you put something to death, it's like dead and it doesn't do anything anymore. But that's not my flesh. It's not your flesh. The sin principle has been dealt with, but the reality is I carry my flesh wherever I go. Wherever I go, it's there. It's a little latent desire. Yes, conquered, but it's still there and it loves to rear its ugly head. It loves to show up. It loves to manifest itself. And so this flesh is with me wherever I go. So the idea of put to death, put to death, that, that's always been confusing to me. But atrophy? Man, that helps. And here's why. Because the idea is that believers, through the power of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, through the Word of God, engage in intentional atrophy. I intentionally choose to not activate my flesh. 
I take my flesh and I say to it, I will not exercise you, I will not use you, I will not give you strength or power. So then I started to research, what does the word atrophy mean like in medical terms? And I found this great diagram. The normal bicep, um, like John Schmidler's on the left over there, <laughs> looks like that. Okay? My bicep, on the other hand, looks like that on the right. Okay? And actually, when I looked at this chart, I was like, oh, bummer. That's really a bummer, because my arm looks like that one, not like that one, right? So, so what, how does that happen? It happens because you, you don't use the arm, right? Those of you who know about lifting weights, you start lifting weights, which suddenly I was motivated to do after seeing this little thing. And you lift weights, and the more you lift, the stronger your arm gets, right? So those of you who have puny little, you know, girly man arms, the reason you have those arms is because you don't, because you don't use them, right? <laughs> I just said girly man in church, Corey, so check that out. That's good, huh? So the reason you have those arms is because you don't use them enough, right? So don't be jealous of big guys who got big arms because they're using them and you're not. So just get over it, right? So so you use your arm and you strengthen that muscle and you and what's what's interesting is you start lifting weights, right? Suddenly you start lifting 100 pounds. You're curling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That weight goes down and you're like, I can lift 130 pounds. Pink. You put that baby in. Yeah, you know, put it down and I can lift 150 pounds. You put that baby in and pretty soon, here's what happens. You start using that arm. There's a desire to find out how much weight you can lift. There's a desire to see how much can I really curl? How much can I bench press? See, once you start activating that muscle, there's a desire to see how much further you can push it. And doesn't that sound an awful lot like our flesh? And so what's the spiritual strategy? The spiritual strategy is to find a way to take our flesh and say, I will not activate you. I won't exercise you. I won't pump iron of my own sinful desires with you. You will be there. You will go with me wherever we go. But you will not rule me. You will not control me. And I will do everything in my power through Christ and by the Spirit and through the Word to deactivate you. I will walk around you gently and try and keep you asleep. I will not awaken you. How many of you are Sunday afternoon siesta kind of folks? Let me see. Yeah. Is that your tradition? No, that's a lot more of you than that. Come on. <laughs> well, I certainly am. Don't ever call me at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday, because here's what will happen. If you call me at 2 in the afternoon, you will activate me. Okay? <laughs> and my kids know when mom and dad go down for the nap on Sunday afternoons, not a good time to be arguing and fighting. Not a good time to be slamming doors or fighting over stuff. Because if they come in the room complaining about each other, they know that to wake dad up is to activate his flesh. That's what they know. (laughs) So the idea is, is that through the power of Christ, I choose to not activate my flesh. I find ways and strategies to keep it dormant. I can't definitively end it or completely defeat it but i can make it weaker and that's what some of you don't believe you don't believe you can make your flesh weaker and the reason that you're not making it weaker is because you're giving into little fleshly dainties around you and you're finding little ways to pump 10 pounds a day five pounds a day 15 pounds a day and before you know it that flesh gets stronger and suddenly you say you know what i bet i can lift 30 pounds of flesh today and before you know it you're what you're lifting 50 pounds and 60 pounds You see, moral failure doesn't happen by one huge decision. It happens by millions of little decisions where you activate your flesh in a million different ways until one day suddenly your flesh says, let's go for the big lift. That's 
how it happens. So Paul says here, don't activate the flesh. Avoidance, prevent it, disuse it, flee from it. Listen, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions. You don't beat passionate lusts with an argument. You don't beat it by thinking about it. You beat it with speed. You run, you get out, you flee, you avoid. Proverbs 5, about the adulterous woman. Keep your way far from her and don't go near the door of her house. Some of you are lifting 10 pounds of flesh and there's a 70-pound house and you think that you can walk by the door of the house day after day, week after week, and it doesn't affect you. And I'm telling you, one day your flesh is going to say, hmm, wonder what it would be like to go up the driveway. Wonder what it would be like to knock on the door. Wonder what the inside decoration of that house is like. And before you know it, one step after another, you have activated your flesh. You have activated in a way that God doesn't want you to. Listen to Proverbs 7.25. Let not your heart turn aside from her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Some people construct little convenient boxes. Well, I've not gone in the house. I just walk by the house every day, even though you got a hundred different paths to take. I don't walk by the house, I just think about the house. Well, you could think about a lot of other things, and what's happening is little by little, you are building up flesh muscles. And what Paul is saying here is this, intentional atrophy, aggressive atrophy. Tell your flesh, be quiet, sit down, don't say a word. I'm not going to use you. You're not going to run my life. I've been delivered from you by the power of Christ, and I will not give you even a little taste of what my life is about. Stay out of my life as it comes along with you. So College Park, what I want to call you today is to embrace this idea of intentional atrophy. I want you to look at your life and ask yourself the question, where am I exercising my flesh too much? How much weight am I lifting? We gotta stop exercising the flesh. We gotta let it grow weak. Don't think on it, don't research it, don't act on it. Don't justify it, don't manage it, don't dip your toe in it. Don't get close to it, don't befriend it, don't get curious about it. Avoid, prevent, neglect, starve, run. That's the message. Paul calls us to exercise godliness and we're to starve the flesh. Intentional atrophy means that I say to my flesh, I've been set free from you and therefore you will not rule me even though you still are with me. And the longing of the believer's heart is the day when Christ returns and he says, see that arm? I'm going to cut it off and give you a new new arm and there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. There's no more sin. The former has passed away and All things are made new. Man, that's going to be a day, isn't it? And the longing of our hearts is for when that happens. So that's the principle. Let me tell you, it's really important. we got to do a better job of not exercising the flesh. The battle, then, involves a list. Paul gives us an illustration of the sins that we ought to not activate. Paul frequently uses lists like this throughout the New Testament, and this was not meant to be an all-inclusive list, but merely an illustrative list of the things that we need to deactivate our flesh in. The first is sexual immorality. 
Everyone say, duh. Duh. Okay, good. Just want you to remind you that sexual immorality has no place in the kingdom of God. We need some people in the body of Christ who more consistently look at sexual immorality as a sin that we go, yeah, that's not supposed to happen. As opposed to, ah, everyone does it. No. Sexual immorality, the Bible says, doesn't fit with the kingdom of Christ. Greek word porneia comes from the word meaning harlot. Original meaning of the word meant prostitution. came to have a broader meaning to include any immoral sexual activity. The focus of the word seems to be on illegitimate sexual intercourse. Paul is saying, look, here's the physical manifestation of lustful desires, sexual immorality. This we should not activate. And then he goes to the next level. And what you're going to see is that there's a a digression deeper into the heart, lest you say, sweet, I never did that. Yeah, just wait. Here it comes. Impurity. Next word. This word refers to moral uncleanness. Often it went along with porneia. Usually went porneia and the idea here of impurity. The idea is this, that after somebody committed sexual immorality, they were declared to be unclean. It was this moral state of their soul. It was this guilty conscience. It was this environment around them. And the idea is just, it just is this sense, this aura around you. This person just has an immoral sense about them. In our house, it's the word hebes. <laughs> okay? That guy gives me the hebes. Right? That's what it means. Just this sense that there's just something mm, just not pure about the person's demeanor, their actions, how they appear, their just the, the aura around them. You get the sense? Wonder where they were last night. Wonder what they've been doing. That sort of thing. It means this aura around you. So it means not only acts of sexual immorality, but it also just means this sense around you. Then we have the word passion. Passion, Greek word pathos. It means dishonorable passions. Because you can be passionate about good stuff, right? Passionate about Jesus, but you can also be passionate about the wrong stuff. And it refers to when something dominates the desires of the heart, the mind, and the will. The idea is that this person may be externally looking really prim and proper, but internally they are out of control. Their, their passions, their desires, their, the heart, their mind, the will all combined, and it leads to sexual excess. That's where it ends up. So passion is this latent fire that when the wrong object comes, whoo, it just burns into flame. It's the young man who has a perpetual wandering eye. And externally he looks like he's a great, upstanding citizen, but internally he has a passion that is out of control. It's a young girl who must have a boyfriend. She's just got to have a relationship because she's got a hole in her heart that she's got to fill with a relationship. And although initially nothing happens physically or sexually, the reality is her heart is out of control and it's just a matter of time. That's what it means. So we go from immorality to impurity to passion. Then we go to evil desire. Greek word epithumeia means a passionate desire for something. Desire is a neutral term in the Bible. It can be a good thing or a bad thing. Jesus said that he epithumeiaed the celebration of Passover with his disciples. So he literally lusted after the opportunity, strongly desired to have the 
Passover meal with the disciples. So the problem with epithumia, this desire, this strong desire, is not necessarily the desire itself. Listen, it's the object that you desire that makes the desire wrong. It means that the desire itself isn't necessarily sinful. It becomes sinful when the object that is sought is out of bounds. So, therefore, the object makes all the difference in the world. So there could be strong desire for Christ. And when that happens, that is glorious. You could epithumea Christ. I want to, I want you, Christ. And on the other end, the object, when it is out of bounds, then it becomes a sinful desire. And that is why, College Park, it is so important for me and our staff and elders to lay before you a compelling vision of who Christ is, because we have to help you understand that when you pursue things other than Him, you are pursuing a, an unworthy object compared to Christ. And what we need to do, best word I can come up with, is the word eclipse. We need to eclipse those desires that you have with a compelling vision of Christ and say to you, why would you even want to go here when you can have Jesus? Why would you even want to fill your heart with that when you can have Christ? You don't know who He is. And an eclipsing vision of Christ and a focused desire on Him is that which helps us with evil desires. And then finally, the granddaddy of them all. In case you thought you could come to church, or just when it was safe to come to church, here's a word, covetousness. Who among us doesn't struggle with this? What Paul is saying here is if you boil all of this down, you boil all of our sin down, it is a simple desire for what you don't have. It's a desire for what you don't have. It's a longing to be able to fill your heart with more than what God has given you. Which is why, at the end of the Ten Commandments, it says you shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's donkey or your neighbor's wife. So, desiring what someone else has, that's covetousness. And then, to drive the point home even further, Paul then says this. Covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Ever read the Bible and go, this is one of those moments. Covetousness, which is idolatry? You know what that means? It means that at the heart of a desire for more is this relentless pursuit to be dissatisfied with what God has given us, to say to God, you haven't given me enough, and to take yourself and to make you the center of your heart and life, Covetousness is simply an expression of worship. It is who rules and reigns your life. And does God have the authority to say to you, here's the boundary of your life, live in that? Or do you say, I'm the God of my life and I don't care about your boundaries? Idolatry is at the core of covetousness and at the root of all of these sins because all of these are the expressions of a sinful, me-centered heart where I say to God, get off my back, I'm going to do what I want. And therefore, covetousness, my friends, is not a little moral discretion. These are not little lapses in judgment. These are just not mistakes that we make. This is treason. This is treason. This is saying to Christ, you don't reign, I do. 
You don't rule, I, my heart does. I've got a right to be loved. I've got a right to have my needs met. I've got a right to have what I want. I will not be denied what my soul desires. And when you say that, you are saying, I will be God. So if Christ is the center of the universe, and if things were made by him and for him, then setting our affection on anything else at the neglect of him is idolatry. So that's why Paul says we got to stop exercising the flesh. Because our little five-pound weights where we're exercising the flesh are little elements of treason. Don't you divide those little areas up in your life and say, well, it's not a big treason issue, it's just a little treason issue. No, there's, there's no big or little in God's economy. Yeah, there's bigger consequences. Treason is treason, whether it's a little or a lot. And that's why the call to stop exercising the flesh is so huge. And then finally, I know that there's some of you here today who have, frankly, hardened hearts. You've heard a message like this a hundred times. And the reality is, unless God touches your heart, you'll continue to justify and compartmentalize and find all sorts of excuses. And there's some of you here today, you've got no hope. You're like, yeah, this is, you're talking about my life, Mark, but I've like got, you don't know how many times I've tried. And to that, Paul says two things at the end. First, He gives a warning about the fear of God. Look what he says. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Direct. Don't you fear God? That's what he's saying. On account of these things, the wrath of God is being poured out on the world. Or in point of fact, this is the stuff that your Savior died for. This is the stuff for which he absorbed God's wrath. And the point is, do you not fear God? Here's a motivation that that springs from a heart that realizes who God is. It means that God will not be mocked. What you reap, you will sow. It means that if you're a believer in Jesus, that God will discipline you. He will not allow you to go the path of sin. And if you're like, well, I'm just kind of going the path of sin and nothing's happening, look out. Because it is a sign of God's mercy and judgment when he disciplines you. When he seems like he's far away and pulled his hand from you. When it seems as though things are going difficulty and you find yourself crying out to him and saying, God, what's going on? And the point is, God may be trying to get your attention and saying to you this morning, don't you fear me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you understand the depth of my holiness? And the extent of the redemption of Christ? Paul says, this is the stuff for which the wrath of God is coming on the world. And then the second thing he says, which is a beautiful statement of hope, for those of you who feel like there's no way I could ever come out, is this. This is not who you are anymore. He says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. See, you used to walk in this stuff. But now, Jesus gave you a new heart, such that, yeah, before you couldn't do anything different. Oh, you could stop for a little while, or maybe you could somehow um, just kind of placate it and modify your behavior. But a real change, a change of heart, a change of motive, a change of desire, that only comes through the person and work of Christ. And Paul says, this is who you are. Live like it. You don't need to walk in them anymore. Does it mean that the desires go away? In some cases, yes, but not always. Does it mean that it's never a temptation again? In some cases, yes, but not always. The flesh is complicated. It means that I always take it with me. But here's the difference. It means that as a believer, I can say to my flesh, you don't rule me. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to obey you. You're going to sit down, shut up, and not tell me what to do anymore. That's what you can say to your flesh. In the power of Christ, 
through the Spirit, and in the Word. You see, what the Bible's calling us to here is a radical view of what it means to follow Jesus. Or maybe it's not that radical at all. Maybe it's just so radical for the world in which we live that it feels so radical. The principle is put sin to death. The battle is the insurgency of the flesh. A a, a foe that's been defeated, a, a conquering nation is in you. It's Christ, but you still have little insurgencies. They love to do little bombing attacks and little runs and come back, but they're not in control anymore. And it also means one day it will be defeated once and for all. Sanctification means that the motivation is the supremacy of God and the strategy is, look, I'm going to cultivate fruit. I'm going to have fruit grow as I mortify the flesh, as I engage in intentional atrophy. See, the more you use your flesh, the more it grows. When I was in um, junior high, I was a pretty short guy in my class and I grew dramatically in high school. And during that season, I loved to see how high I could jump. You know those little um, things over top of doors, headers? I loved to see how, how if I could touch them or not. So I'd be, you know, running through the house, and I'd jump up and bang, get that, ooh, yeah. You know, I'd be like, sweet, yeah, sweet. So I'd hit that, you know, and ooh, you know. Anyone have teenagers like that in your house? Like, bang, they're hitting everything, right? You know what I'm talking about? Good. So as I grew, I, I, I tried to see how high I could get up on the, on the wall. And what I found out is that my, my dirty, grubby hands left mark on the walls, right? So I jump up and boom, try and get that. And of course, that drove my mom crazy because you could see the ever-growing mark on the wall. And, you know, people would come to our house, look around, and I guess you guys have a junior higher in your house, don't you? They could see the hand marks, you know? And after a while, I got to be so tall and I could jump so high that I could actually, I could touch the ceiling, right? So I'd be running in the house like, you know, coming down, and I'm like, yeah, like like it's a dunk or something. You know, it's like power. And the more I jumped, the the better I I got at it. I'm, you know, coming from the airport last evening, it would be ridiculous, right, for me to be running through Indianapolis Airport with Dale Shaw and running along. I'm like, oh yeah, man, give me five, bro. Let me go check it out, right? Because I'm an adult, right? I've grown up. At least I should have, right? And the idea is that the more I jump, the more I grow, the higher I can go. And and the more I use my legs, the higher I can go. Here's the message. College Park, stop exercising your flesh and putting dirty marks on the wall of the church. Stop making a mark on the bride of Christ. Stop using your flesh to see how, how, how how strong you are and how able you are and how much you can fulfill the fleshly desires of your heart. And instead, I want to call you today to take that flesh and say to it, you don't rule me, you don't own me, and I'm going to stop exercising you. You're going to be here, but you're going to get weak. You're going to get weak and weak and weak and weak, and the spirit's going to be strong, and the heart's going to soar, and you flesh are going to be this puny little, yeah, girly man arm that doesn't do a thing in my life. Nothing. I am going to choose to stop exercising the flesh. May God help us, dear friends, to do that. Father, now we ask you to help us to stop exercising the flesh. Lord, all of us are on this list. 
There's not a single person in this room who's not guilty of idolatry. The question is not where, if we're on the list, the question is where and to what extent. And thank you that our only hope is Christ. Oh, man, Lord. We would be just unable to do anything without you. Some of us have known you for years. we got really strong fleshly muscles that we have exercised way too often. And we just need to say, down arm, you will not move. College Park, in a moment, we're going to take the Lord's table together. It's a great reminder of the body and blood of Christ. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, and we are prone to forget, aren't we? I mean, we know it, but we just don't know it. We know to fear God, but we don't. So the quietness of this moment, would you just prepare your heart as Paul talked about? He said in 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself. In fact, no one's worthy. The only thing that makes us worthy is a personal relationship with Christ. So that means if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ, let me give you just a very loving but firm warning. Do not participate in this event. Yeah, it's just crackers, it's just juice, but there's something bigger that is celebrated here. It is the blood and the body of the risen Son of God who you, friend, must deal with. And dealing with Him means at first saying, I don't know you, so therefore I pass this plate. Maybe this morning you're under discipline by somebody. And if that's the case, you also ought to pass. Because this is a sacred moment. But if you know Christ, and I know we're not, no, no one's perfect. But it means that if by the blood of Christ your sins have been forgiven, you know who Christ is, man. You are vivified and mortified. You are trying and trusting and Today, in repentance and in faith, you come and say, Christ, I receive the elements. I'll give you a moment to prepare. And then our men are going to come and serve us. Let's just quiet our hearts before the Lord.